You're listening to Reverb, a podcast about politics, culture, and language in action. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. Folks, Reverb is a show about social and political issues as seen through the lens of rhetorical analysis, exploring both how language works on us and how we can work with language. It's also a direct descendant of the Silver Tongue, a blog maintained by CMU English students from 2010 through 2016, which bore the slogan, Rhetorical Criticism for the Engaged Citizen. And here in our inaugural episode, we're sharing our interview with one of the co-founders of the Silver Tongue, Doug Cloud, an assistant professor of English at Colorado State University, in which we address what our definition of rhetoric should be, the connections between rhetoric and public decision-making, and the value of exploring big questions in the humanities through a variety of case studies and contexts. We're talking today with Doug Cloud, an assistant professor of English at Colorado State University and one of the founding editors of the Silver Tongues, a blog dedicated to providing, uh, quote, rhetorical criticism for the engaged citizen and the spiritual predecessor of Reverb. Uh, Doug, welcome to Reverb. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So so I wanted to just uh, kind of get into, again, since you since you are one of the uh, sort of founding editors of the of the Silver Tongue of the blog, um, specifically as it was relating to rhetoric. Again, the sort of uh, uh, the tagline or the motto of the site was rhetorical criticism for the engaged citizen. I thought we might start uh, from uh, you know from from kind of a, a definitional point. Um, you know, and I know that it's a bit of a cliche in in the circles that we run in to ask a question like this. Uh, but how would you yourself define rhetoric? Uh, why is it important as a discipline of study, or as something that we even even just something that we do mm. in everyday life? Uh, and why do you feel that it's important to bring knowledge of rhetoric uh, into the public? Um. Oh boy, gosh! I remember in graduate school when. Uh, what is rhetoric was a question that <laughs> everyone dreaded. It was kind of like the um, the ultimate jerk move that you could do <laughs> would be to yeah. ask someone that question. Yes, um, yeah, and that is the that card I'm... that I've decided to play. <laughs> uh, that's fine by me. I, I think um, no answer is going to get it done in less than an hour. Sure. You have, you have yeah. to start from there. Mm-hmm. But since we're talking about rhetorical scholarship that is designed to in some way be intelligible and useful to the public, I think it's okay to start with a very general definition, which is rhetoric is language that gets things done in the world. It's the use of language by humans to achieve an effect or to try to. Obviously, we still look at language that tries and fails. And then you can add another layer onto that. You can add a normative layer onto rhetoric, and you can say, well, good rhetoric um, gives reasons that are supported by evidence. It doesn't set out to deceive. It tries to achieve mutual understanding rather than just getting people to do what you want. Now, when I define rhetoric for undergraduate students, I often say that it's the only known alternative to force. Right. Uh, if you want to influence people, you can uh, hit them. <laughs> or you can persuade them, and those are really the only two choices that we know of so far, although, of course, that's an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. Now, for scholars, we have thornier questions, like right. if for something to be rhetorical, does it does that mean that it is translatable into a proposition supported by reason, supported by evidence, or can rhetoric be something that is more diffuse or harder to restate mm-hmm. as just alphabetic language. Uh, does, does an argument, does rhetoric have to be intentional or can it happen unintentionally? Um, what about things like buildings and rooms and algorithms? Mm-hmm. Can, can these things argue? Um, and if we say that everything is rhetorical, which people do, um, right. are we diminishing the usefulness of the term? If everything is rhetoric, then nothing is. I mean, it, <laughs> it has to, in order for it to be a, uh, I sound like Saussure here, in order for it to have any meaning, it has to be, some things have to be it and other things have to not be it. 
Mm-hmm. But I think it's fair to say that most, if not all, human communication has a rhetorical element. It seeks some change in an audience's thinking or action. Uh, it may do other things too. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a great definitional kind of baseline to start from. And I like that you yeah that you were drawing on the uh, the kind of uh, the the Perlmanian and uh, Obrecht, or I guess I shouldn't say, the Perlman and Obrecht's Titeka sort of distinguishing of you know rhetoric as being an alternative to force. Mm-hmm. That this is something that's you know I think it's really productive to look to to think about rhetoric in terms of the ways that it's you know can provide a you know a, a sort of you know productive. Uh, change uh, or that it can lead to action that is you know in a way that is not coercive that uses you know again sort of like reasoning uh in order to to get to that uh and yeah and at the, and at the same time yeah I, I i find myself kind of you know stuck between those debates too about you know what is and what is not rhetoric uh because a lot of times we can we can sort of you know when you get to thinking about like oh yeah, yeah like you said you know a, a building uh or you know even you know things out in public like uh, you know, benches or, um, you know, uh, the streets, the ways that things are designed in the world uh, kind of impel you to interact with them in a certain way. Uh, do we consider that persuasion? Um, I think that it's, you know, these are interesting questions to ask. But um, And if, if, we're, if we're talking to a public audience, I think it's really helpful to, if we're defining rhetoric, I think it's really helpful to start with the idea that circulate, that people have that rhetoric is dirty language that it's it's persuasive language that is gross in some way Mm -hmm. or slimy Mm -hmm. Um, that's definitely not the way i define it and if we're going to get into things like can buildings argument can buildings argue (laughs) it's very useful to have an easy example and i'll give you one sure um when the nazis appropriated greco-roman architecture one of the things they did was to scale it up dramatically and you you can see this in contemporary shots of north korea so that you have these enormous buildings these enormous squares and one of the things they do rhetorically is they remind human individuals how small they are Mm. in relation to the state so that would be an example of how a thing like a like a building or architecture could argue yeah absolutely yeah that's a that's a really fascinating and a great example to kind of start us out with thank you yeah, so Doug, in terms of uh, this public-oriented um, view of defining rhetoric and you know making rhetoric useful for the public, um, what was kind of your you know you and the other founding members of the Silver Tongue? What was your impetus for for starting it, and um, did it relate to that idea of uh, you know opposing the common sense view that rhetoric is everything bad that your opponent, your political opponent has to say? Hmm. Well, I think in our more grandiose moments, we imagined that uh, there could be a public out there that was interested in language research of the kind we wanted to do, which was a very easy, understandable analysis of public discourse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that would, where we would take something that people are, hearing in their everyday lives, whether it was political or whether it was a sign that they're seeing in their community or whether it was something that had gone viral and was showing up in their Facebook feed and get them to look at it in a different way. Right. We see that we saw that, or at least I did as an intrinsically useful exercise that human beings are better human beings when they look at things more deeply, when they can look at things in more than one way. Uh, we weren't sure that there was a public out there at all. We we hoped and fantasized that there was. Um, but, you know, it, if you think there might be an audience or that there should be an audience, I'm, in, I'm inclined to say that you should go for it. You should try to call an audience like that into being, as, as Michael Warner would say, mm. run it up the flagpole and see who salutes, right. put on a show right. and see who shows up. <laughs> um, mostly we liked... We just like talking about current public discourse in a deeper way that doesn't really make it into peer-reviewed scholarship or it doesn't make it into scholarship fast enough mm-hmm. for it to make a difference in practice. Um, I, I was personally doing a lot of scholarly writing at the time. You know, I was writing my dissertation. I was writing – exam. at that time I was writing my exam proposal and mm-hmm. 
I felt like I had lost my voice a little bit. I still feel that way mm-hmm. because I have to do so much academic writing. Yeah. And it was very liberating to write in a way that somebody like my dad would want to pick it up and read it and to be able to get a little sassy, to be a little arch. You don't get to do that in scholarly discourse or only some people can get away with it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, yeah, I'm really glad that you that you brought that point up too about, you know, again, this being, you know, not only a means of, you know, yeah, engaging a public or sort of calling a public in the way that, yeah, a theorist like Michael Warner uh, talks about, but yeah, also being a way to, you know, make scholarly work translatable uh, and make what we do more accessible to the public as well, because, uh, and, and for all the concerns that you mentioned specifically of, you know, yeah, current events, you know, not uh, being, you know, quickly translatable into, you know, scholarship uh, because, you know, peer review takes time and, you know, writing, you know, a lot of, you know, robust research takes time. But, you know, that doesn't mean that the scholarly lenses that we're developing or the thing, the tools that we use, uh, you know, can't or, or shouldn't be um, applied to things that are happening kind of in the moment, uh, you know, as they happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was wondering also if we could talk a little bit more about, you know, on that notion of, you know, who, uh, who the public is that's, that you, that you think you're, uh, or that we, we sort of want to be addressing here. Um, so as I, as I stated earlier, the original motto of the silver tongue was, uh, rhetorical criticism for the engaged citizen. Um, could you say a little bit more about, about specifically what that means, uh, particularly focusing on the term engaged? What does it mean, do you think, for us to be engaged as citizens? You know, what does rhetoric have to do with this concept of engagement? Um, and has your, I mean, you know, as a auxiliary question, has your uh, definition of engagement changed uh, from when you started the when you started the blog originally to uh, to this current moment? I think we used engagement in a pretty simple way. We did not think deeply or theoretically about that as sure. a modifier for citizen hmm. engagement is a key term in higher education that refers to the connections between scholarship and community so it's come to mean that more for me as i have moved on in my career but we just meant people who want to ask questions so people who might encounter the news about President Trump makes a statement and and the the claim is that that statement is racist. And so Mm -hmm. um, an engaged citizen is going to care and they're going to agree or disagree, but they're not going to stop there. They're going to want to say, well, why exactly is it or isn't it? What are our criteria for deeming a statement racist? Um, To me, the ideal citizen, encounters a problem or a controversy or a choice really and instead of having a knee-jerk reaction this is my opinion this is my view and let me defend it as loudly as i can they ask what are the arguments Mm -hmm. on either side there's a sense of kind of calm curiosity about it obviously that's not always possible particularly with issues of justice and 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 threat um that sometimes anger is a very warranted reaction but wherever possible um the engaged citizen says okay but what else does this tell us what they want to keep going they want to keep asking questions yeah so i mean what one thing that occurs to me when you, you know, give that description of the ideal citizen, and I, I don't know if uh, if we we're going to go to this kind of like devil's advocate position later in the interview, but what interests me about that um, formulation is that I think a lot of theorists or commentators would say that that kind of... Uh, position is, uh, correlates with privilege, right? The idea that you can calmly um, analyze arguments on all sides of an issue and uh, come to, you know, this kind of reasonable uh, 
um, position. And I'm, I'm not necessarily defending that position, but I'd be curious how you would uh, address that. Uh, the, you know, the idea that your material circumstances uh, relate to your ability to sit there and weigh all of the possible reasons and come to um, this kind of nuanced perspective. The critique that, that you're giving voice to is a critique that was often leveled by feminists against the practice of Rogerian rhetoric. So Richard Young, who founded the rhetoric program in which you're both matriculating, right. uh, proposed a kind of argument that tried to remove face threat, right? Tried to achieve mutual understanding. You were supposed to find points of commonality between you and, and your opponent to demonstrate that you've understood their position. And their point was that uh, for a group that might be oppressed, that means that, that the oppressed group has a lot more to lose from that stance than the dominant group because they have to acknowledge the validity of the point of view of their oppressors. So, uh, you know, as a queer person, am I really going to say to somebody who's, you know, boy, I see why you want to put all gay people on an island and then nuke it. Um, oh, but geez. let me try and let me try and dissuade you from right, that point right. of view. So there are certainly instances in which it really doesn't make a lot of sense to respond that way pragmatically. Yeah. And there are, I think there's an argument to be made and it's a good one that calmness is um, a kind of backhanded critique of rhetorical practices that don't fit with mm -hmm. a Western rational critical model that mm -hmm. there are practices like testifying or, or um, you know, calling out or, or I don't, you know, there's, we could probably name a lot of them that involve strong emotion and that by uh, attributing calmness to the <laughs> ideal citizen, I'm expressing a, a negative viewpoint towards those practices. <sighs> yeah, boy, that's a tough critique to respond to in a lot of ways. I think, mm -hmm. I think there, I think that tension has to persist. Right. I think we have to say, we have to, is, is that, coming from a position of privilege? And the answer is usually yes. Does that mean that um, that, that perspective is totally valueless? I hope not. I, well, I maybe... strive toward, well, let me just say that I, I, I strive to be a person who, um, one of the things I study is uh, anti-gay arguments uh, anti-trans arguments. And, um, sometimes when I'm looking at that data, it really gets, it gets my hackles up, right? It gets mm -hmm. my blood boiling. I like getting to the point where I'm able to look at it and say, here's what's wrong with this other than just that. I think it's gross. Mm -hmm. And, and to like appeal to certain standards to make those points, um, standards of good argument and good, good deliberative practice. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think there, I'm, I'm on board with there being many different kinds of good argument, many yes. different kinds of good citizens. So calm probably wasn't the best word. Yeah, no, and, and Doug, I was, I really wasn't meaning to oh, yeah. play like a gotcha there, but no, it, it yeah. just, it got to something that we definitely wanted to touch on with you, given your, your expertise in public sphere theory and yeah. stuff like that. Um, well, and so maybe we should go to the sure the quote next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just and I and I also wanted to say because I think that I think it's it sounds like what we're what we're moving towards. I'm just trying to kind of you know synthesize where we've gone in the conversation so far is that you know we're again as you said earlier, Doug, about you know the original one of the original sort of founding ideals of something like the silver tongue was to take. Uh, you know, a concept or a, a, an entire field uh, such as rhetoric that a lot of people would have this sort of knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's BS, that's just, you know, BS or that's, you know, bad, uh, bad language. From um, online posts to rhetoric from elected officials. Well, that is not what happens in these cases. And using that kind of uh, 
scare rhetoric is just terribly unfortunate. Um, that's the difference between rhetoric and reality. What Tim Cook is putting out is rhetoric, and what the investors are seeing is reality. Now, you have to yeah, know the, the macro issue of politics, though, is still very much prevalent, especially talking about the shootings. Who's to blame is the heated political rhetoric part of the, of the blame. The FEC government's campaign rally and cry to restore security, rebalance the economy, and fight corruption was not all rhetoric. We're also going to get treated to more divisive rhetoric from a desperate campaigner in chief. It's shameful for a president to use the State of the Union to divide our nation. The head of the Boy Scouts of America apologized to members of the organization on Thursday for the political rhetoric that was inserted into its national gathering this week by President Trump. Our great nation is teetering on the brink of political and cultural anarchy, and the blame lies with Hollywood and public universities and the far left. The hateful rhetoric has given birth to bloodshed. Amnesty International said President Donald Trump's, quote, poisonous rhetoric is leading what Amnesty calls a global trend towards more divisive politics and has made the world a, quote, darker place. Obama runs the presidency as if his main job, his only job, is rhetorical and political. Shore up the base, make speeches. It's all rhetoric. He's got a crisis of management. I think that, I think the other, uh, what we're what we're going towards, or what this 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 last uh, you know sort of little interchange has sort of illustrated too, is this other this other notion that people have uh, when I you know for example when I tell yeah people around uh, you know a holiday dinner table that I study rhetoric, uh, the other one is uh, oh well I should I should watch I should watch my grammar around this person I should right. watch my sort of standard of correctness uh, in terms of you know how how uh, rational I'm being in my own sort of like linguistic practices. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that opens up this whole other uh, dimension of rhetoric as this kind of, you know, this, you know, that it's this kind of situated practice. It's not just purely a, a sort of, you know, normative standard for what counts as good argument or good, uh, you know, deliberative practices, but that these are kind of, you know, situated within the communities that they occur with, you know, the people uh, that are in them as well. Um, and and so to that end, uh, I, I I had a there was a quote that that uh, that Calvin and I uh, uh, I know that we'd shared this with you in the in the document beforehand, um, but this was an interview uh, that you gave back in uh, 2014 with uh, the English department at CSU, um, where uh, you talked about the importance of studying uh, English uh, rhetoric and and such in our society, in which you said uh, quote I think the most uh, most of the problems facing humanity are not technical. That is, we don't face many issues that we can't find technological solutions to. Our weakness isn't finding solutions to problems, but getting everyone to agree on a single or a set of solutions. Uh, we aren't really good at shared decision-making uh, because we live in a society where face-to-face -face communication is impractical, we can't get everyone in a town hall meeting to agree on a course of action, it's hard to solve the global issues facing humanity because we don't see the consequences of our shared decision-making, which often have far-reaching but unforeseen implications. People are more alike than we are different, uh, and by studying the humanities, we attempt to reconcile our values and our actions and tackle the ideological problems of our society and our world. So I was wondering if you could expand specifically on some of the things that you mentioned in that quote, such as, you know, shared decision making, because that's probably something that not a lot of people would associate with rhetoric, uh, or at least, you know, members of the public might not associate with rhetoric. Uh, upon first hearing it, uh, you know, so what exactly is it that a rhetorical perspective or, or an English and humanities oriented perspective uh, contributes to this sort of, you know, deliberative processes like shared decision making or, uh, you know, uh, again, coming, coming to terms with some of the implications of the ways that we argue about issues? Hmm. You know, you can be in a field so long and I haven't been in this field for that long. I'm not really that old, <laughs> but you could be in it long enough to forget that people don't associate rhetoric with decision-making. Yeah. I, I remember hearing for the first time, the idea of rhetoric as inquiry and being just totally befuddled by that idea yeah. because I saw it 
I saw the starting point of rhetoric as you have a proposition, you have an argument, and you're going to make it. And hopefully you're going to make it well, and hopefully you're going to make it ethically. Right. What I didn't understand, but I think that I'm beginning to understand now, is that rhetoric is also a factor in how we reach conclusions and decisions. So mm-hmm. you, you take a small group of people who are trying to figure out a course of action, and if they're operating out of a consensus-driven model, they're, they're going to have to agree on a single course of action. It's going to take rhetoric to get there, um, hopefully, in a right. really good deliberate interaction where we say, well, what is, here's an option, what are the positive and negative what are the trade-offs? What are the advantages here of different courses of action? That's rhetoric. Mm-hmm. That's rhetoric as inquiry, using those practices to evaluate possibilities. I think that's partly how I see rhetoric entering deliberation. The other place I see it is in our heads, which gets back to your earlier points and questions. I think studying rhetoric makes people better people if uh and especially if they learn the art of self-deliberation which is we i have a thought and i think now what would be what would be an alternative to that thought and now why do i think that and how would i justify that yeah to a particular audience that that we're kind of always going through that process i think that makes people more thoughtful but that's just my view do you think it's harder in this day and age to engage in that kind of like metacognition where you, you know, you put a position out there, maybe in your own head, and you think about it, and you think about alternative positions and kind of go through this dialogic process on your own? Is that harder in, in a day and age when um, it's so tempting to just post uh, <laughs> your, your your position and, and it it kind of takes on this uh, objectified quality where it's that's your position and and it and it even though everything is very ephemeral um, on the internet and and in you know today's like technologized culture it also our, our positions seem to have a more like final quality seemingly mm-hmm. uh, when we post them for instance do you mean that if we take a position on something publicly it's very face threatening and embarrassing to change it later. I, I think that's part of what I'm what I'm asking about. Yeah. yeah. Particularly with online discourse, it seems that seems to be kind of a well, and maybe that's just because, you know, online spaces are not really designed to be great deliberative spaces because right. they record positions such that they're there forever and it's hard to, you know, modify something without you know, I'm thinking on Twitter, you know, without somebody like quote tweeting you, it's like, well, remember when you said this back in, you know, to, when, back in 2009 or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is, is it is it more difficult to do something like that in an age where at least, you know, online, uh, the spaces in which we engage uh, uh, with the other people or talk about politics or talk about these pressing issues aren't really... Uh, in a sense, d- designed to encourage that kind of uh, that kind of rhetorical thinking, maybe. I want to say that there are a lot of people making a fair amount of money on pop psychology books that <laughs> claim that this or that internet practice are making us stupid or inattentive or mm, shortening right. our attention spans or right. we're addicted to this or that. So that's all been those points have all been made. Of course, I think we can say for sure that it's difficult to engage in rich thought if you don't have the space to do it in. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean the quiet and time by yourself, mm-hmm. uh, even just a little bit of it, uh, apart from, I mean, th- think of all these moments when you're picking up your, you're waiting in the doctor's office. So you're reading the news on your phone. You're, mm-hmm. um, you have four minutes before, somebody meets you at a restaurant, right? And so you're, you're looking at your phone, your friend goes to the bathroom while you're having dinner with them in a restaurant and you pull out your phone while they're away. Right. And like all these interstitial moments, 
what did people do with them before? I don't really know. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. So in that sense, maybe. But when have we ever, I mean, do we really want to fantasize about a past that may or may not have existed in which right. people were walking around like Socrates reasoning about <laughs> this or that and interrogating their beliefs through the Elenchus, through, you know, and asking themselves difficult questions. That's a really good I don't, point, yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that people have changed, uh, can change so radically in a generation that we could get stupid or get meaner or angrier or something. I, don't, I just don't buy it. Hmm. Um, I think our capacity for those kinds of activities is probably the same as it ever was. Uh, the question is just, are we, are we doing it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. And I'm glad you offered a, you know, a kind of a corrective to the, again, like, like you said, pop psychology books. I'm thinking a lot of, you know, like the, you know, Nicholas Carr and the shallows is making those kinds of arguments about how, you know, what the, yeah, what the internet is doing to our brains and other, you know, uh, yeah, pop media theorists who have uh, done that kind of work. Um, at the same time, it's hard to, I mean, at least for me as someone who, um, you know, and probably all three of us here in this conversation, like we're all digital natives to to one right. extent or, or another. And, and it's like, h how can that massive material change not hmm. influence our rhetoric, the rhetoric of our generation? Um, if we, oh, how... How could it not? I mean, how could it not? I mean, yeah. you're absolutely right. And I, and I, in, in invoking that, the pop psychology stuff, I, I don't disagree with it. Well, the good stuff. I right. Yeah. There, it's, it's a, there's a variation. Right. But it gets, it, after a while, it gets kind of obnoxious right. to mm -hmm. hear over and over, um, that, uh, social media or the available of, of information is making us stupid or some other thing. Right. And I, I get to the point where I want to say, well, what would you suggest? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, that we divest from all technology, that we that we burn our smartphones uh, in a massive fire, and that we, you know, go back to, uh, yeah, go back to reading books. I guess I don't know. Yeah, but there are more and less. You know, there there are, there are variants and degrees of disengagement yes. from the most toxic forms of online sure. uh, communication and discourse. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. There are certainly healthy habits that we can cultivate. Um, things like, again, leaving leaving technology, limiting our our own access to it in a disciplined way, mm -hmm. um, taking our work email off of our phones. Yeah, that's a good. If you, if <laughs> that's you one can. that I need to do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a big difference mm. in your mental life. I do a lot of that kind of thinking while I am jogging. Mm. Yeah. That's very hard to read a smartphone when you're jogging. I mean, I've seen people do it. <laughs> I've seen people do it too. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's hilarious. But it also, I yeah, see it people also, do it yeah. while they're biking. Oh, jeez. Very alarming. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, that's that that almost becomes a public safety hazard at that point. But uh, in addition to not you know not not great uh, you know mental mental practice uh, in terms of you know mindfulness and everything. But um, yeah. So Doug, before we let you go, um, we we wanted to just ask you to update us on what, what you're researching right now and, and uh, what brought you to study the things that you're studying right now. Well, uh, my research is a little bit unusual in that while I have a consistent focus on a set of problems, um, how do we figure out who other people are in discourse and how do we change our understandings of who other people are in discourse? So you take... Uh, uh, an identity category or a label and look at how it gets revised uh, over time uh, is one of the things I do, but I do it in lots of different places. So I study queer rights rhetoric. Um, I study uh, the rhetoric surrounding atheism and atheists and how they are defining themselves. I find that a very fascinating area of inquiry. Mm -hmm. And then uh, most oddly of all, I, I uh, you know, also have a branch of research in in climate change communication oh. particularly because the thesis that has been advanced there by uh, a number of prominent voices is that the reason we can't get people to agree is that it's become a tribal issue it's about our identity rather than than the science um so there's all these in intractable problems <laughs> 
floating around me. One is how do you uh, let go of the fantasy of a logos only mm -hmm. discussion of a scientific issue and look for positive roles for ethos and pathos in those discussions. So mm -hmm. if, if identity and, and, and who we are and tribalism have infected it, what do we do then? Um, a, a big concern for me right now, I, I have one project uh, out on it and one project in, in process, is this question of human rights arguments that depend on low agency claims. I was born this way. I can't change. I can't help it. Right. Uh, those should be familiar to people from uh, mostly from the gay rights movement. Um, and so I am trying to imagine what the alternatives to that might look like, because there are so many problems with that approach. So mm. as a whole, um, looking at issues of uh, identity and identities in public discourse, stigma, public discourse, how marginalized groups get represented. Um, but I do it in, in different areas. Areas so different, everybody raises their eyebrow when <laughs> I talk about my research. Yeah. I, I, it it kind of seems, though, that a lot of that, like, you know, there are, there are you know, the locus of a lot of your research does circulate around these, these issues of, you know, identity and the function that that plays in in arguments, um, you know, whether whether we're talking about you know uh, LGBT rights or uh, arguments surrounding uh, climate change, like you said, that's ended up being so kind of tribalistic and centered right. around identity, um, as well, yeah, like atheist discourse too, which is very you know, which which I would imagine is is fairly rooted in you know, sort of identification of yourself, uh, you know, as with with one thing or against another, uh, as well. And it, it sure does. I, the reason I went into to studying atheism was um, partly because I'm an atheist and sure. I was curious about how people talk about it, mm -hmm. but also partly because um, it's an ex I think in order to understand a, a linguistic phenomena, you've got to look at it in different domains. It's not enough to look at something in just queer rights. You've got to see if what you're talking about holds true elsewhere and, uh, there hasn't been a lot of discussion in rhetorical scholarship about uh, atheists as a category of people. Right. And what has been done has been a lot of it kind of, um, I guess I would say nasty. <laughs> really? In, in, what, uh, in what regard? Uh, just in the... Uh, I don't want to speak ill of somebody oh, sure. else's work. Oh no, it's a, you don't have to name, name But since names, I'm yeah. but since I'm punching up. Uh, <laughs> right, that problem. is true, yes. Um so that uh Roderick Hart who is a uh, an eminent uh rhetorical scholar yeah. in the 70s wrote mm -hmm. uh an article called uh Unquiet Desperation. Mm. Um arguing more or less that atheism as a social movement had failed and that that failure had created a series of negative characteristics in uh, atheist rhetoric, anger and black and white thinking. And I'd have to go to my notes to find the full list. But I wow. thought um, this is really infected with a very negative viewpoint towards this group of people. And it's fine to have a negative viewpoint toward a group of people um, if you're willing to justify it. But I wanted to see, well, let's um, kind of go easy and just see what's going on here and what we can learn from it. Um, but I, um, I wonder as a researcher, whether our current environment will reward a scholarship that looks disparate, that looks like, you know, that is in different areas. That's a, mm. that's a thing to think about when you're in graduate school yeah yeah no absolutely i like studying lots of different things i think it's really fun and fascinating i think it makes for better research but it does not make for faster research <laughs> certainly I can say that well it probably takes you back to coursework a little bit i mean that's what we miss about coursework is being able to like do you know do one paper on on this 
controversy we're interested in right. another paper on this controversy you know yeah no absolutely yeah absolutely i mean even yeah i know that it's 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 been kind of strange to you know because i myself study you know uh, food justice a- a- activism and advocacy uh, so hunger movements essentially um, but I also have these kind of subsidiary interests in, uh, you know, again, doing kind of critical analyses of um, of uh, men's rights activist discourses online. And, um, oh, how fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's always I mean, you know, in addition, it's kind of t- you can you can find a thread, you know, that's, you know, weaves all of these together, whether or not it's, you know, a kind of. Uh, you know, what is it exactly that helps people constitute a group identity rhetorically uh, that, you know, serves this sort of cohesive function? How do you develop a sort of lexicon for how, you know, quote unquote, we talk to one another and how we, you know, uh, oftentimes to the exclusion of others? Um, And how do we use that kind of identity to mobilize people to actually, you know, to paraphrase you from earlier, how do we use that to those kind of linguistic moves to to uh, call for action how do we use it to right. get something done um and so yeah i mean i personally i really appreciate that about about your work and the way that you're describing it as uh you know finding finding this sort of common you know thing that's of very you know real rhetorical importance and you know tracing it as it you know is kind of occurring in all these different contexts and all these different domains i think that that can be really powerful I want to know how people come to know who other people are, not in a interpersonal way, but in a in a categorical way, mm-hmm. and how that changes. And I am I'm with you, Alex. I want to look at some of the really troubling stuff, uh, as well as some of the good the the good the stuff we would we would prefer to be reading. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a pretty good summation of uh, a lot of the reasons why not only did we get into the field, but also why we wanted to do something like this uh, as the, you know a podcast and you know the the sort of you know continuation of the legacy of the silver tongue yeah. uh, in the form of reverb. Uh, boy, legacy is a generous word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I I mean, you know, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't believe in the value of uh, of what you started. Exactly. Well, I wish you well, and <laughs> I I hope that you enjoy uh, great success and satisfaction in, in your efforts. And I hope that you will continue to develop a nuanced view of what an engaged citizen looks like. Fantastic. Uh, we didn't figure it out, but maybe you, <laughs> maybe you will get closer. We're going we're gonna to at least continue the conversation. Give it the old college try. Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. All right. All uh, right. Well, Doug Cloud, uh, thank you so much for being with us. This was such an enlightening conversation. Uh, is, there any, is there anything that you'd like to plug or any ways that our, our listeners can, uh, can find you? Do you have a Twitter handle that we can, uh, that we can plug here? I do not tweet regularly. <laughs> That's not That's uh, here's the the social media thing i'm not a big social media guy you can find me on academia.edu great um i keep a a repository of my work there um uh, that would be the easiest way to do it you know excellent all right well you can find all of his work there as well as in many uh different uh, rhetoric publications as well doug cloud thank you again so much for being with us thanks doug It's, it's my distinct pleasure all right all right take care we'll talk to you later To conclude today's episode, we give you a portion of a conversation we had with two of the other Reverb editorial team members, Anna Cook and Ryan Mitchell. Our conversation began by addressing the question, why should anyone listen to this podcast? And the discussion brought us to the topic of the relations between the humanities and STEM fields, which is the portion that we're including here. No, I mean, I'm trying to... I'm not sure that I can articulate this that well. So I'm sort of like I'm trying to think like what do they, what do the humanities do for me? Um, I have uh, I guess uh, sort of a philosophical commitment to the idea that like human meaning exists inside of human sort of systems, right? So like yeah. like and it's a sort of speciesist perspective on this. And um, so I'm thinking about things like philosophy and history mm-hmm. and the ways 
that things like narratives and myths and frameworks for conceptualizing meaning that don't that are not easily quantified that don't necessarily manifest themselves well inside of like micro trends that that can't be sort of like reduced easily that that don't show up because yeah. we don't have you know a record inside of human history that we have that we have you know like the I'm free associating and not even sort of a logical way, but sort of like a, you know, Jungian archetypal unconscious kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. this idea. I mean, I try, you know, like when my students start to like talk about how they're having problems with their parents and I talk about sort of like the Jungian archetype of the hero. And I'm like, this is a thing that many of us go through. Like when, you, you know, you have to like confront your father and that's just like a thing that happens. And right. So there's all sorts of like ways of making meaning um, that the humanities understand, yes. right? That, that are powerful, yes. that are, you know, like like stories, things that connect us to each other, that connect us to communities, that connect us to, like in a sort of deep, rich sense that are not, that just don't, you know, they can't be quantified, that, that, you know, it's hard to sort of conceptualize the ways that they guide our actions, but are like tremendously meaning, like I just want to be like, they're so meaningful, but like the, we, that is what the humanities have been cultivating yeah. and studying and understanding and sort of like offering for a long time um, and it saddens you know so like in relation to the political like those things are there so I, but to me those are also sort of like resources for the average citizen to kind of like understand themselves as a person in a different way from you know whatever kind of you know like I have all this health data on my phone that tells me that I am you know somebody yeah. who walks this many steps a day like those right. things are really important too you know mm-hmm. are ways of conceptualizing yourself in relation to a human experience that aren't just about explaining the socio-political landscape but also sort of like a recentering of like this is not the only way that you can conceptualize like your life your relationship to the life world your life goals mm-hmm. your you know place in the universe like the humanities do that, you know? And I also think that, like, what you're saying, Anna, I think resonates so much in terms of this propagandistic strategies behind politics that are rooted in statistics. Right. So the idea that what I hear you saying is that identities are forged through historical, historical and contemporary narratives of self that are portable across individuals, across times, in certain right. regards. However, when we have kind of a mass, we have a mass culture that people feel completely alienated in their identities because of the representations of politics or sexual minoritarian identities, whatever. There becomes this question of, do a heavy reliance on statistical mappings actually work toward dominant hegemonic political systems. I mean, there was this wonderful, and I cannot remember the author, so you're going to have to put this in the notes or something like that at the end, but this author writes this wonderful, as a rhetorical author, writes this wonderful piece about the rhetorical effects of um, red state, blue state mapping. Oh, yeah. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I Not, do. I don't you know what I'm author. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Beyond the borders of red and blue states, Google Maps is a site of rhetorical invention in the 2008 presidential election by Amber Davison, Rhetoric and Public Affairs, 2011. Um, and about how what it does is an alienating apparatus. And so when people see, if you were, I mean, it works both ways. If you are a liberal or you are, if you are a conservative in a state that does not match your identity, you don't go vote because you don't feel like you have a political voice. So right. at the same time that statistical data is somehow trying to quantify what the public opinion is, heavy quotations around public opinion, what it's fundamentally doing is isolating people from a particular type of identity mm-hmm. that they may or may not want to express at a particular moment. Right. And so I think that what it does is it anesthetizes any or paralyzes any type of dissidence at a maybe grassroots local level because people don't feel like there's anyone around them. Yeah. But I wanted to say that, I mean, one of the, the economic Nobel laureate for, so the Nobel Prize winner for economics was um, Richard Thaler, who was famous for bringing in behavioral economics, which is fundamentally what I view as being a humanities-infused approach to economics, which embraces human volatility, uh, like um, human variation and behavior, illogical structures of decision-making. And I think that what we're seeing is that those have incredible purchase analytically. And they have a lot of analytical, they have a lot of um, potential explanatory value that if you're, 
working on the assumption that there is some kind of encoded logical human relationship that is programmed into us we don't have yeah and this speaks to what Anna was bringing up earlier about the mind-body distinction right so like the idea that there can be that fundamentally the idea of big data is trying to get at the mind versus the body right because the mind is always statistical and the body is always emotional that's and the so the humanities framed, yeah. pushes against those pushes against those easy dichotomies yeah yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm comfortable with, uh, like, associating the mathematical with the dominant and the subaltern. I think some, some weird I mean, I'm not necessarily here. saying anyone directly asserted that, but I was sort of hearing it. And I think that. Can you, you know, explain what you mean? So, so what yeah. I mean is that I think there's a tendency to associate kind of. Um, yeah, like non-mathematical, more humanistic, uh, emotional, embodied ways of identifying or ways of uh, thinking and conceptualizing um, issues or or ideas, mm -hmm. associating that with a subaltern a subalternity, and uh, associating a more mathematical, rationalistic. Uh, uh, you know, a uh, cerebral right. approach with a more dominant identity, oh, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I think that I, that's violated all the time. Uh, you know that that assumption, and also, but of course, I, I think of it kind it of is. assumes that that you know, like subalterns can't win on the playing field of rationality and statistics and and cerebral. Uh, uh, engagement with issues, and, yeah. I, and I don't think that's true. No, and I, and I don't think any of us were, were positioning that were positioning though that kind of knowledge as such. I mean, if I if I if I was using the term dominant or you know trying to positioning like STEM fields that way, it's just because they you know they get more money than we do. Sure. <laughs> I mean, sure. There's just kind of a bitterness factor of that 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 seems to be privileged more. Again, it's a very again we, that's a human choice that we should say too. That, uh, that those kinds of knowledges have been framed that way, the way that Calvin is describing them, that I think we do want to push against in a, in a really major way. Like, you can't, have, you can't have one without the other. You can't be right. purely rational without well, yeah, and, and having that kind of, you know... What I would say is that the structure of language, for instance, is a system that tends to be relatively self-contained and rationalistic and like very, very uh, strictly structured. And that's something that, that we, cannot, we cannot engage rhetorically without at least using as a resource. And so I would submit that there's no way of, of, of avoiding these kind of like statistical, mathematical, rationalistic like sides of the human experience. And I think that we wouldn't be good humanists if we like completely rejected that. Right. And I, 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 I agree with you, Calvin. Like I don't you know, I think our department is a great example of a place where like if, if somehow we were drawing some kind of weird map and we put rhetoric inside of the a logical or a rationalistic, like some of our faculty's head would pop off because yeah. they're like tremendous at logic and rationalism and argument and they understand like rationality and rational argument and the way that those things function both on a philosophical and also sort of on a like like structural level much better than people who might necessarily like make arguments that are premised on the way that rational rationality functions right yeah, like, yeah. like they get rationality they study rational right um and we make quantitative arguments like I make quantitative yeah. arguments in my own work right exactly. like so we're so yeah to sort of like draw you know sort of hard battle lines between ways of making knowledge and sort of like probabilistic thinking or quantitative thinking or yeah. even sort of empirical methods versus like humanistic analytic methods is like problematic and that's yeah. kind of yes. I think what I hear you kind of pushing against um, I mean I I also but I do think that <clears throat> For me, what is kind of more the heart of the issue to some degree is the kind of positive correlation between like technical progress that tends to come out of STEM, like technological project process, progress, engineering progress, um, um, that tends to come out of STEM innovative fields and like the sort of like capitalist 
idea of human progress as like positively correlating with like economic growth, certain mm-hmm. modes of dominance, sorts of modes of reproduction, right? Um, so it's not it's not the sort of like way of making knowledge right. as much it is the sort of like way that that knowledge making becomes sort of like sucked into like larger economic systems and social systems and you know all those other yes. things, right? It's not like 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 I love empiricism and thank God there are people who know what antibiotics are and who study it, you know? <laughs> and, and I like I love them and I want them yeah. to keep getting funding. Yes. Um, and I think yes, we should yes. love computer science and love robotics right, right, because exactly. because, you know, hacktivists are computer scientists yeah. and, yes. and and there could be you know, we could be building robots that are that are equalizing the 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 you know, means of production. But I think that there's but I I'm going to push back against this a little bit because I think that there's a difference between wanting to have and utilize the technological affordances that are present in a moment Mm -hmm. for all the potential they can have. But there is, in the arguments we're making, still a hierarchy that's set up between a logical, empirical approach and one that's rooted in a more kind of experiential lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I understand what Kelvin is saying. Do you mean in the arguments we're making yes, here yeah, today? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that, what, I think that what, what I hear you saying, Kelvin, in terms of the, so I think that you're right in saying that there's often that kind of assumption that subaltern communities aren't really good at making rationalist arguments. And that we can see there's a heavy appeal to emotion, as we were talking about earlier in the night, with kind of like, identitarian white nationalists playing into victim politics. However, I think that what we are seeing increasingly is that that victim narrative is being cushioned inside of really unsophisticated readings of different types of biological theory. So while they might be coming from a space of emotion or affect, what they're trying to do is gain entrance into a quote-unquote empirically solvable discourse and they're trying to like the google memo is a perfect example right so the guy is citing different types of scientific work to show that women are somehow not actually productive in stem fields Mm -hmm. and so what it has to do with is what are the what are the um who are the sources that we're citing who are the people that we're working with to validate our claims i think that what i'm arguing for is not so much that we need to push against the idea that there needs to be vetting or robust work in any type of endeavor at all um, and I'm not anti-progress technologically or mathematically, but what I'm anti is the idea that there needs to be a, um, somehow it needs to be reduced to a rigorous, quote-unquote, rational metric of vetting. I and I think that there, I think that this is such a difficult way to talk about, it, and it shows kind of what you were saying about the rigidity of language, is that obviously language changes all the time, and the ways that the things that words come to mean are are malleable but in the current moment when we're using them the ways that we talk about facticity even just the word facticity assumes that it's verifiable the way we talk about things that we feel to be true or have any type of um, currency are rooted in a rationalist perspective and yeah. that's a hegem- that's that's a hegemony i think that's he- yes. a hegemony yeah and i think that that's a really useful way to think about again how i'm conceptualizing what this podcast and our sort of project and as scholars could be useful for us to again we're drawing on you know uh, Antonio Gramsci's uh, term of hegemony here of this sort of you know sort of ruling ideas or you know thoughts or ideology of the day um, you know we're trying to generate a, uh, a broader kind of consent for a different hegemony but I also want I want to say to Anna though too because I, I I agree with Anna like I'm not trying to argue that there's not an ontological real like a, a certainty because antibiotics work like and they're great and yes. they're fantastic mm-hmm. robots have allowed us to do tremendous things and these things are real like I think that yeah, and robots don't yeah. need to blow up little kids they could yes. be doing great yeah, things exactly. that's the point right. I was trying Precisely. to make earlier right. well yeah and that's and that's also to this yeah. idea that all the things that technology is being used for these are made up of human choices you yes. know these are human systems you know like we can't understand stem without understanding the humanities i would i would contest our 
Show was produced today by Calvin Pollock and Alex Helberg with editing done by Calvin. Reverb is a production of English graduate students at Carnegie Mellon University. Alex Helberg is our editor-in-chief. Calvin Pollock is our podcast editor. Our web editor is Anna Cook. Our content editor is Derek Handley. And our PR and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. Thanks for tuning in.